Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. When I say Hawaii, what comes to your mind? Beautiful beaches, amazing food, relaxation and escape, perhaps kind-hearted people and a slower pace of life? All of these are true for me, but how much do we know about the history of Hawaii? I was lucky enough personally to have a Hawaiian roommate my freshman year of college, and we actually roomed together after freshman year because we loved each other so much. She's one of my dearest friends, and she would teach me Hawaiian history, and she would quiz me on each of the islands as we fell asleep at night. She also brought me to Polynesian club meetings with her, and she would practice traditional dances in our room at night and share those with me. And she even taught me some phrases in the Hawaiian pidgin language that some of her friends used. And so I feel a deeper connection to Hawaii than I would have if I had not known Kelly. But even with that personal connection to Hawaii, I never dug deeper into history or asked any difficult questions about colonialism that are right under the surface of the U.S.'s relationship with Hawaii and that happy vacation feeling that we all have when we think about the islands. So we're going to ask some of those difficult questions today, specifically about Hawaii and more broadly about colonization. And to guide us through this discussion is University of Utah professor Dr. Miley Arvin. Welcome, Miley. Oh, mahalo. Thanks so much for having me. So thrilled that you'll be here with us. I'll just read your professional bio and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself a little bit more personally. Dr. Miley Arvin is an associate professor of history and gender studies at the University of Utah. She is a native Hawaiian feminist scholar who works on issues of race, gender, science, and colonialism in Hawaii and the broader Pacific. At the University of Utah, she is part of the leadership of the Pacific Island Studies Initiative, which was awarded a Mellon Foundation grant to support ongoing efforts to develop Pacific Island Studies curriculum. Arvin's first book, Possessing Polynesians, The Science of Settler Colonial Whiteness in Hawaii and Oceania, was published with Duke University Press in 2019. So it's an impressive bio. And actually, what I didn't mention is another article that you wrote that we're going to be basing our discussion on today. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I just have to tell you, Miley, actually, after reading your article, I've seen it referenced in like two or three other articles and books afterwards. And I was like, oh, I know that article and I'm going to meet her. So it's been really, it seems like a really foundational piece of scholarship that you put out into the world. So congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's been great to see so many people find it useful. Yeah. It was really useful to me and I, I can't wait to discuss it. But first, could you just introduce us to you a little bit more personally, where you're from, your family, and a little bit about what brought you to the work that you do now? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up partly in Kentucky and partly in Hawaii. My dad was from Kentucky and my mom's from Hawaii. Specifically, my mom's from Waimanalo on the island of Oahu, which is a small Hawaiian homestead town. And so I'm native Hawaiian through my mom's side and grew up having a strong sense of native Hawaiian identity from my mom even though I grew up a lot in Kentucky. And so I think growing up, I always had a lot of questions about, I guess, just how things got to be the way that they were in Hawaii and particularly around. So my mom grew up on a, on what was, it's called a homestead, which has a really long and complicated history. And I, after doing this for so long, I still am not good at like explaining it in like a few sentences, but in general, for folks who have no background, Native Hawaiians don't have any kind of thing that's like a reservation, the closest thing, like in the in the American Indian context, but Hawaiians have what are called homesteads that were set up in the 1920s. And you have to prove that you have no less than one half part Hawaiian blood in order to be eligible to lease a homestead. Hawaiians can never own the land. It's owned by the state and like leased through the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Anyway, as you can guess, there's like a lot of history and politics with that. But what it meant and continues to mean for my family is that the house that my mom grew up in is owned by the state and it could only be passed on through my family to those with no less than one half part Hawaiian blood. Technically, the rest, everyone in my family can get on a wait list for their own homestead, but 
the wait list is notoriously really long. Like people usually die before they've been on the wait list their whole life and they still aren't called up for it. So anyway, all of that is to say, I always grew up knowing or just having a lot of questions about how, how that got to be that way. And just questions about race in Hawaii more broadly because of some of the ideas that your listeners will probably be familiar with that Hawaii is, has a really high rate of mixed race people and is often seen as kind of a racial paradise or a place where there's not racism doesn't exist and ideas like that. But so I grew up hearing things like that as well as seeing in practice that that racism did exist against Native Hawaiian people. So I think all of that brought me to my research and wanting to know more about how to talk about issues of race and also gender in Hawaii and more broadly. Mm. That was completely new information for me when I read about it. And that one thing that struck me as you were talking about Hawaii is this haven of not much racism and maybe people can get that impression and it's so friendly and warm and open and there's so much diversity, but then there are these structures, like people can be nice, but still maintain really unjust structures, right? Yeah, Um, exactly. Although I'm sure there's also cases of overt, unkind, terrible racism as well, I would imagine. But well, thank you for sharing that background. And I would actually love to invite you to share just a really quick history of Hawaii, too, just to kind of set the stage for the specifics that we're going to talk about. Would you mind just kind of giving us a bird's eye view of the Hawaiian Islands? So, yeah, I teach a whole class about the history of Hawaii at the University of Utah. I just taught it last semester, and I I really enjoy teaching that class. And in that class... We start by talking about genealogy, actually, and because genealogy is a really important, I guess, like a form of knowledge and a way that history gets passed down in Hawaiian culture. And so for Hawaiians as a people, there are many kind of different traditional genealogies, but one of them is called the Kumulipo. And in that story, that genealogy, we're descended from the descendants of the god Wakea and Papa. Wakea is like the sky father and Papa is kind of known as like the earth mother. And from those two, some of their first descendants were Ho'ohoku Kalani. And then Ho- she gave birth to a stillborn who was named Haloa, Haloanaka. And Haloa was buried in the ground and became the first kalo plant or taro plant, which kalo, as some people might know, is the basis of our kind of staple food, poi. And so all of the, that genealogy teaches us that Native Hawaiian people are the younger siblings of kalo or this plant that sustains us. And I say all of this partly just to help orient people towards how Hawaiians understand their relationships to the land in Hawaii, which is a familial ancestral relationship, right? But yeah, kind of zooming out or incorporating the history as it might be told in more Western ways, Hawaiians are related to other Polynesian peoples and other Pacific Islander peoples. The first Hawaiians we know voyaged from somewhere in the Western Pacific to Hawaii and settled the islands around 400 CE. And there are these really important traditions of long distance sea voyaging that are important to Hawaiians, as well as all other Pacific Islander peoples. And a lot of those traditions have been subject to revitalization in the last few decades, which is really exciting. As the Hawaiian Islands became more populated and Polynesian people settled there permanently, eventually a society grew up around chiefs having certain powers and responsibilities and then common people who generally like work the land or were trained in some specific kind of art or trade. There, there are estimates that about 800 
thousand to a million people lived in Hawaii before Western contact, and a lot of our society was based on fish ponds and the kalo terraces or loi kalo that grew taro in in large amounts, and that was then made into poi or other kinds of foods that sustained people. And so each island had kind of a chief, and then each island was divided into districts that also had chiefs. And for a lot of Hawaiian history, each island was kind of separate from each other until Kamehameha the first kind of went to war with different islands and conquered them and then united all of the islands. I believe that was 1810. And so from that time is really when we can talk about Hawaii as like being one nation, although people spoke the same language and generally had shared culture, but it was only united under Kamehameha the first. And then Western contact began before the islands were united. So yeah, James Cook arrived in Hawaii in 1778. And there's a lot to be said about Cook, but he actually came to Hawaii twice. The first time he landed on the island of Kauai and met with some people there and then continued on to Alaska or like Northwest Territories area and then came back. And when he came back to Hawaii, he landed on the big island, the island that's also just called Hawaii. And his conduct there was such, or the conduct of his men was such that they got into a battle and he was killed. And then there's been a lot written in Western historiography about if Hawaiians were really savage and that at first they thought that Cook was a god, a Hawaiian god that had come. But And then there are a lot of stories about how maybe Hawaiians ate Cook like in a cannibalistic way. So there's all this kind of mythology around Cook and his death in Hawaii. There's a lot to say about that, but I think that kind of gives you a sense of how for a lot of time, until the last few decades, really, when there's been more Native Hawaiians writing histories in a way that's legible to Western audiences, that our history has been told in fairly racist and problematic ways. I am so, so grateful that you were the one to share the history because I looked up Hawaiian history on lots of different sites. And the one that I found that I thought if if I were to share an outline, there were like two sentences about Hawaii prior to European contact. And it's so it's still presented in the way of like Hawaii was discovered. You know what I mean? On this, this is the date that it, it kind of became a real place is kind of what the implication of that is. Right. So to ask you to introduce it and have such a rich, and I, I mean, I know you were like condensing it down to like the bare <laughs> minimum of what you could talk about, but that I just sat here just feeling so grateful that you were able to share such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful history. Yeah, I do have, so much. yeah, really, that was so wonderful and so important because obviously like that's the original and most important context. That is the context for that place. I'd love you to talk about just briefly, if you can, how did Hawaii become a, a U.S. state? So there was Cook that came in the late 1700s. And after Cook, many other Europeans started to come to Hawaii. I think at first it was mostly kind of the whaling ships. And at some point, sandalwood began to be traded between Hawaii and China in particular. So yeah, Western folks started to come through Hawaii kind of for the resources that it offered. And then in 1820, American missionaries first arrived. And then many waves of missionaries from all different denominations followed. The first missionaries were Protestant missionaries from New England. Then the children of those missionaries that came in the early 1800s, they came of age in Hawaii. And because of their somewhat elite 
status, they were able to kind of own large pieces of land in Hawaii. And many of those missionary children became sugar plantation owners in the Mm. kind of mid to late 1800s. And so it was really kind of the power of the sugar plantations that caused the Hawaiian kingdom to be overthrown. In 1893, a group of white, mostly American, I think one British businessman in in Hawaii at the time had become kind of increasingly upset that the Hawaiian kingdom wasn't kind of giving them enough like breaks on taxes or whatever they needed to like continue to make huge profits off the sugar that they were growing. And so they, with the implicit backing of the U.S. Navy, who also was beginning to have some presence in Hawaii, the U.S. military also saw Hawaii as a really important place to have a stake in because of its kind of so-called strategic position between the U.S. and Asia, which is still still the case. So the U.S. Navy was there and they were kind of implicitly backing up these American businessmen. And so they they overthrew with that threat of force from the U.S. Navy, overthrew the queen at the time, Queen Lily Okalini. She wrote a lot about this and said that they forced her hand. She abdicated the throne, mostly because she didn't want to cause like bloodshed <laughs> of her people who likely would have fought to keep Hawaii independent. And so that's how Hawaii first lost its independence. For a few years between that overthrow and 1900, the U.S. Congress was debating about whether to annex Hawaii as a territory or not. And at the time, the debates were a lot about white Americans who didn't want more like people of color added to the United States. But also at the same time, Native Hawaiians were organizing to say, we don't want to be part of the United States. We want our kingdom back. Like the U.S. should restore our kingdom sovereignty because just some of your citizens overthrew our our kingdom. And so it, for a couple years, uh, it was kind of unclear what was going to happen. But In 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the U.S. decided it needed to annex Hawaii as a territory in order for its Navy ships to have a place to stop and refuel on its way to fight in the Philippines. Anyway, that's how Hawaii became a territory officially. And after that act, the Newlands Resolution was passed in 1898, and it took until 1900 until it was like officially incorporated as a territory. And then, yeah, from 1900 to 1959, Hawaii was the U.S. territory, which is the status that Puerto Rico has today. Hawaii became a state also after kind of years and decades of debate about its status. After World War II and Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941 really changed some people's ideas about Hawaii in the sense that maybe before that, Hawaii wasn't really seen as like really, really part of the United States. But after Pearl Harbor was bombed and the kind of famous quotes about it being like the first attack, foreign attack on U.S. soil, it kind of just hammered home the importance of Hawaii to the U.S. military. And that, along with many other reasons, but that really changed how people living on the continental U.S. saw Hawaii and eventually Hawaii became a state in 1959. My heart is so heavy hearing that history, and I have so many more questions for you that I (laughs) didn't plan and didn't didn't kind of alert you to. And I guess I won't ask them, but what I will say is I now feel even more motivated to do more digging about the history. And I hope that listeners, if you have had questions come up and some sadness come up hearing about this history, do some research, learn more about it. And we will. We'll talk a lot about a lot more issues going on. But again, I'm just so grateful that you shared this history, Miley, because that's not how we learn about it. (laughs) It's just not. So, well, for the rest of our discussion, which I'm so excited to get to, because again, your article just really, I was just underlining and underlining. I learned so much from it. The article is called Decolonizing Feminism, Challenging Connections Between Settler Colonialism and Heteropatriarchy. 
And I'm wondering if you can tell us just really quickly who your co-authors were and a little about the article, and then I'll just ask you a bunch of questions. I had the pleasure of writing that article in 2013 with two of my friends and colleagues. One is Angie Morrill, who was a grad student with me in the same program. She's Klamath Modoc, native a native tribe in Oregon, and and our other colleague Eve Tuck, who's Alaska native, and she's now a professor at the University of Toronto and does a lot of really wonderful work around like land education and lots of cool collaborations with black and native youth. And they're both so wonderful. And it was so great to work on this article with them. Originally we had been asked to write something together for, it was for an introductory women's studies or gender studies textbook. And we wrote like the first draft of this article and we sent it into the textbook and they said, oh, this is not what we had expected. I think they, they really wanted us to write something that was more, I don't know, kind of like personal testimony about our oppression or something, which, you know, I think Angie and I, when we got that feedback, we weren't really sure what to do with that. But luckily Eve was farther along than us and could say like, yeah, this is wrong and we -hmm. don't have to do this. And we just said, okay, no. And then Eve kind of immediately helped us find another place to publish what we had written. So yeah, it's just interesting to think about kind of what what gender studies or women's studies expects or wants sometimes when they're asking for contributions from Native scholars. So anyway, I think what that helped us kind of clarify in our minds was that we really wanted to, it's not that personal testimony is not important, but but we really wanted people in gender studies to kind of grapple more structurally with Mm -hmm. issues of settler colonialism and the ways that feminism, when it's only kind of attentive to the needs of white women, can participate in settler colonialism. And so, so yeah, that's kind of the history of that article. I'm so glad I asked that question to get that background. That was fascinating and so, so like relevant to what we're talking about, even the process of publishing it. That's So interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the themes from the article. And the first question I wanted to ask you is pretty basic, but for listeners who haven't really heard this term before, the article explores two intertwined ideas that the United States is a settler colonial nation state and that settler colonialism has been and continues to be a gendered process. So the first question is, can you define settler colonialism? Settler colonialism is a specific form of imperialism or colonialism. What it means is really that the colonial power comes to a new place and stays and takes it over and changes existing society so that it's more what the settlers prefer. And Mm -hmm. often that involves or has involved the various forms of elimination or repression of Native people, of Native societies, and kind of forced efforts of assimilation or just kind of war and genocide. And we, when we talk about settler colonialism and not just colonialism, it's not to say that settler colonialism is like a worse version of colonialism or like a better form. It's just to kind of specify that it's the form in which the colonizer comes to stay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that kind of distinction is, was it important to make? And that distinction began being made more in like from the 1980s, 1990s and onwards, because I think some discussions of colonialism and post-colonialism always understood, were always in reference to places like India or other places where the British had taken over, but it wasn't like a site of large scale, like British citizens moving to India mm. and imagining that they would then be like permanently living in India, if that makes sense. Yeah. And sometimes people in the United States understand that there was a history of kind of white settlers who 
fought with Native American people. But then often the idea is that was a long time ago, that colonialism is like part of the U.S. past, but that doesn't happen anymore or, you know, ideas like that. And so I think when we talk about settler colonialism as a structure or talk about the U.S. as a settler colonial nation today, what we're trying to point out is that that these processes are ongoing, right? That Native people are still here, but their societies, their cultures, their ways of life are still often under enormous pressures to assimilate or otherwise capitulate to kind of white white American ideas about how we should be living. We'll have a lot of episodes throughout this season on the settler colonialist state of the United States. And for some listeners, this might be hard to learn about. I know that I've cried a lot as I've read these things and I've, as it's described, those are literally my ancestors doing those things. And to talk about that it's an ongoing issue, the fact that I live where I live on land, that it's hard not to feel like I don't have any right to live on this land. I don't know. (laughs) It's really hard once you like kind of see it for what it is. My sure. goal, my goal in in highlighting this and learning all of this, one of the goals is just the first step is to know what really happened and then to take action. So we'll highlight some things that we can do to try to make reparations and try to improve the situation because our ancestors aren't alive anymore. You know, if we have ancestors who did colonize places, they're not here to make things right, but we are. So Anyway, thanks for that, Miley. And then can you introduce some of the other terms? One of them that comes up a lot in the article is heteropatriarchy. So can you talk about that? And heteropaternalism, those two. I know you talk a lot about patriarchy on your podcast, so some of your listeners probably understand that patriarchy is a social system in which people have ideas about men being kind of the natural leaders of society, of families. And there are ideas that go along with patriarchy that men are kind of naturally stronger, smarter, better in in various ways, right? And specifically talking about cisgender men. And so, yeah, patriarchy is just basically a society in which, you know, the power kind of accumulates to men and not to women, or that there are certain kind of rigidly defined ideas about gender and gender roles that place men above women. Mm-hmm. And we added in the hetero part to the patriarchy to, I guess, make more clear that it's, the system is dependent on kind of heteronormative ideas, which just means that the assumption is that everyone is heterosexual, that they form kind of nuclear family relationships in which there's a man and a wife and a family, right? And so, yeah, just that hetero part on the patriarchy is just trying to more consciously recognize that it's about kind of like male domination, but also particularly, yeah, like heterosexual ideas about who men are and cisgender ideas about who men are. The other term that we use is heteropaternalism, which is very much related to heteropatriarchy, but paternalism gets more at the idea that men know best, right? Or that Mm. heterosexual men are kind of the ones that define how things go. And and it's very much the same system as patriarchy, but I think paternalism maybe calls attention to how sometimes the ideologies that go along with patriarchy can present it in a way that like... It's supposed to like be for everyone's best interests. Yep, totally. That makes sense. So one quote that I wanted to ask you about from the article says that there are rampant misrepresentations of indigenous peoples and their lives in school curricula, the media, and the sociological imagination, end quote. So I just wanted to ask you, what are some of those misrepresentations And what are the impacts of those misrepresentations on Indigenous peoples? Like, how does it feel personally and how does it affect systems and society? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question. I mean, I think many people are really familiar with those misrepresentations. I mean, I think 
I mentioned before that often in the U.S., people or kind of mainstream media presents Native people as mostly existing in the past, that, like that they aren't really full members of contemporary society, or if they are, that then somehow they have they're not authentic or something. So like one example that I use a lot in my teaching when I'm teaching about these kind of issues are in the 1970s, there was this public service commercial on TV where it was trying to raise awareness about littering and like taking care of the environment. And in the commercial, there's a native or kind of a representation, an actor who's made to represent a Native American person. And he's like canoeing around a river and kind of crying at the sight of all the trash in the river, right? And so on the one hand, that representation, it's it's it has a good intent in the sense that it's trying to raise awareness about environmental issues and yeah, that people shouldn't litter, but it's using this really stereotypical and like idea of a native person as existing outside of time. And as a native person, this could only ever be like tragic, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and that they're passive, right? That they're not able to do anything about <laughs> saving the environment. They can, the only thing that they can do is like cry or pick up some trash. There are representations that are maybe more explicitly racist, like some of the mascots, like sports mascots who are Native people or kind of caricatures of Native people. And there's been a lot of folks who write about those and try to get Native mascots changed. But then I think maybe sometimes the more insidious and common misrepresentations are ones that are like that, that are kind of see Native people as kind of like noble savages, like noble mm -hmm. in the sense that they're more connected to the earth or that they represent this like more, like a better society that existed before, but is like mm -hmm. unattainable now, right? And that's just, it's so problematic in many ways, but, you know, it, it really ignores the ways that Native people today are are still alive, are still, are very active in resisting environmental injustices around the world. The next quote I want to read, if anybody's seen the season one of The White Lotus, this might remind you of a character in it, but we're not going to talk about that. But it's, it, this was so interesting because there was, there's this dynamic in the show that really puzzled me and I was just chewing on it for days and days after the season ended. And then when I read this, I was like, that's what happened. That's what it was. Okay. Here's the quote. Whiteness is made to seem neutral and inviting or inclusive of racial, sexual, and other minorities by being included, whether by choice, coercion, or force in whiteness, a wide array of indigenous peoples, people of color, and queer communities are given the quote-unquote opportunity to take part in the settling process that dispossesses just such othered peoples globally. This is one of the key points of the essay, at least as I thought of it, one of the themes, and it's one of the key points I'm hoping to highlight on this season of the whole podcast. So can you expound on this idea, Miley? Yeah, I think this can be kind of hard concept to get. So in the discourse today about like how to be anti-racist or how to promote diversity, that idea is often to just like be more inclusive of others, right? But I think what we're trying to say in the article is that often those like attempts at being more inclusive are just like inviting more people of color into like situations that are still fundamentally structured by white ideas and white assumptions about how things should be. So when that happens, then it's all kind of on the people of color or whoever is kind of othered being brought into the white space to like fix it. <laughs> and that's a really unfair expectation to put on people. And so in the article, we're talking about how that happens with feminism, right? And when white feminists 
kind of tried to engage with feminists of color, indigenous feminists. Sometimes that's it's the same kind of like disconnect or struggle because white feminists are wanting to like invite indigenous feminists into like white feminism, but indigenous feminists or native feminists or black feminists are they're all saying like no, like there are some assumptions that you have as feminists that assume that the problems are only about things that impact white women. But we're Mm -hmm. saying that these larger structures of settler colonialism and white supremacy, they set up our society in such a way that we can't just talk about how things impact white women, right? But that these larger issues that encompass patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, are really implicated in white supremacy and settler colonialism. And therefore, it's kind of, we have to push white feminists who think of things in in kind of a narrow way to expand like the scope of what they think has to be changed in society in order to be a more just society. Yeah, Miley, that's actually the perfect bridge to talk about one of the big themes in the article that I learned so much from where you write about five challenges that Native feminism brings to quote-unquote white stream, so like white mainstream kind of white stream feminism. So how about what if I just read the title sentence of each of the five points and then could you explain each one to us? Sure. Okay. So the first challenge of these five is, it says, problematize settler colonialism and its intersections. It's really to try to understand the ways that that settler colonialism is a gendered process. And so I think one example that I talk about in that section of the article is the issue of blood quantum. And Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Hawaiian Homestead Acts earlier and how Hawaiians have to prove that they have so-called 50% Hawaiian blood to qualify. And what the impact of that policy on Native Hawaiian people has been that Native Hawaiian women face certain kinds of pressure to marry Native Hawaiian men with certain like high blood quantums so that they can have children who have a high enough blood quantum to meet this requirement that they to allow their kids to qualify for Hawaiian homesteads. Right. And that crazy. Yeah. And so that's a way that because it's this blood quantum idea is kind of tied to very like hetero normative ideas of a family and the ways that race gets passed down and kind of Western understandings that places a lot of pressure on women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, that's just kind of one example of the ways that settler colonialism is gendered. And the idea with that challenge is to try to get other people who might be interested in feminism to kind of see how that works, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I throw in one thing too about that? I was thinking about it when you talked about home, the homesteads at the very beginning too, just to drive that home for listeners, if this is new to you, I just one thing, because I looked it up more, I was like, what is this system? I'd never heard of it before. And a lot of the articles that I read framed this like, oh, this is so cool. Native Hawaiians can get free land. Like they're so lucky. And it's so important <laughs> that you point out like they can never own that land, right? It's like basically you borrow it. And I was like, wait, from whom? Like you get it, you're from the colonizer. Like they take the land and say, oh, if you're lucky and you have this much blood and the blah, 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 well, we get to decide what all the rules are. And then if you're lucky and you get your name comes up on the wait list, then you can borrow back land that we stole. Like it just (laughs) makes me so furious. I can't even process it. It's like they are so benevolent for letting you borrow the land they stole from your ancestors. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's such a mess, really. (laughs) Um, A mess. Okay, there's another quote in this section that I really wanted to bring out. Would you mind reading it for us, Miley? Sure. So yeah, we wrote, Native Hawaiian women, like other indigenous women, do not need to be saved from the ways heteropatriarchy and heteropaternalism have taken root within indigenous communities. They are already and have long been working toward decolonization within and beyond their own community's boundaries. Many indigenous women activists have refused the false binary between fighting for, quote, women's issues and fighting for so-called native issues, which for indigenous women are always coiled together. 
I think that's another thing that Native women often face with white feminists who haven't thought critically about these things is that white feminists are saying, oh, it's it's the Native men in your community are oppressing you. And what Native feminists are saying is like, I mean, that's not quite right because our traditional Native culture does didn't, was not patriarchal, right? And so mm-hmm. the ways that it's true that many Native men have internalized these patriarchal ideas, but that came from colonialism, not from our own culture. And therefore, we don't need to be saved from our own culture. We need to, you to work with us to dismantle colonialism. <laughs> hmm. Thank you. As an aside, that's what I wrote my master's thesis on, but in the the Black context awesome. of the civil rights movement. Yes, things for white feminists to learn from <laughs> from doing that. Okay, so the second challenge was summed up by the sentence, refuse erasure, but do more than include. And you talked about this just a minute ago, but is there something else that you could add to that? Like I was saying earlier, inclusion is not enough. (laughs) Okay, the third challenge to white stream feminism that Native feminism supplies is, it says, craft alliances that directly address differences. So yeah, we wrote, one component of this challenge will be for allies who are settlers to become more familiar and more proactive in their critiques of settler colonialism, and to not rely on indigenous people to teach them how to become effective allies. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll throw in there. Many, many books have been written on this topic. So if you want recommendations, then contact us or look back to past episodes on the podcast. And I just have to say how grateful I am for scholars who do this work. They go through like years of research and it's a personal process too, and put the information out there. So instead of us bothering people who have lives and are busy to explain it for their thousandth time, (laughs) we can just read a book so we can educate ourselves. That's, that's my plug there. Yeah. And I think it goes along with what we've been saying, but I think sometimes people want to integrate Indigenous issues or Indigenous people into their projects or events, but in ways that are always on the terms of the group that's not Indigenous, right? And so mm. when the idea with that, with this challenge is to kind of directly address that Indigenous peoples and other groups might have different goals or different needs at the time. And if people want to have partnerships with Native communities, that those, that Native communities' needs and wants should be like part of, of what structures whatever project you're doing, not just kind of like added in when it's convenient. <laughs> mm-hmm. This section also brought out some of the appropriation that happens. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that. I, I was particularly struck by what you wrote about the version of Thanksgiving, where it's from the point of view of the colonizers. And and then you also talk about the Boston Tea Party and how Native Americans are depicted there. Could you talk about that and talk about appropriation a little bit and using those stories in particular ways? Sure. Yeah. So I think Thanksgiving is this kind of foundational American myth about our country's origins as being one where Native people and the white settlers were friends, right? That they had this nice meal together. And I think a lot's been written on like the actual historic accuracy of the first Thanksgiving, but which I won't get into, but even as I like pumpkin pie and having dinner with my family on Thanksgiving, I think we have to be really critical of what that kind of vision of Thanksgiving and this vision of the U.S. as being founded in like Native Americans and white settlers being friends. Like what does, where did that, what does that do in terms of erasing the actual violent history of colonialism in our country. And so I think what we're trying to get at in the article is that so much of the mythology of America has been built up around the idea that Native people and white people are friends or that there's some kind of benevolent relationship there. And in certain individual cases, that's true. But 
The point is that structurally, that's such a lie, right? And that it covers up the violence of of the conquest of this land. And so, yeah, I think from there, we were trying to get into, like, get people to think about other forms of appropriation. Like when people dress up as natives for Halloween or something like mm-hmm. what is what is that about? Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it's partly enabled by the sense that some white people think that native people and white people are historically friends or that there's some kind of historic connection there or relationship there that allows them to like play Indian sometimes. And mm-hmm. I think what we're trying to say is that's not true, <laughs> right? That native people are not costumes and the fact that we even have to say that is kind of evidence of, yeah, just the ways that colonialism is so naturalized in our country. Mm-hmm. I have to say too, I mean, I didn't, I was blind to that my whole life until recently, honestly. And I'm so grateful when that was pointed out to me. And I, I sat with it for a while and thought like, okay, why, what, how would I feel if I knew that my people, like my ancestors, that there had been a genocide against my people, and then the people who had committed that genocide, if I saw them dressed up in the like traditional costume of like, I don't know, my grandparents, like if they were dressing up like the people that they had tried to exterminate, and I was there looking at it, I don't know, for any listeners who, if you haven't walked yourself through that mental exercise, that was really useful for me to like imagine how that would feel. I don't know how how that feels to you, Miley, for me to say that, but that is what my thought process was. And, and it became so repugnant to me, I couldn't even believe that anybody couldn't see that. But I had not been able to see it before, honestly, just because of the air that I breathed my whole life. I just had that position of privilege of never having had to look at it like that before so right yeah no I think and it makes sense right it's not that that you are a bad person right or that necessarily people are just meaning to be cruel but but it just shows how deeply structural these things are right and that we're not taught that's wrong we're taught that's something that's acceptable right I know that when I was in first grade there was I think we had some kind of like play, a Thanksgiving play where, oh, yeah. yeah, some people dressed up as the pilgrims and some people dressed up as Native people, right? And very stereotypical, <laughs> wrong ideas of what that looked like too. So mm-hmm. it's just so pervasive, right? That it yeah. it does take a lot to overcome it. Yeah. I mean, when you, yes, as a first grader, if the adults hand it to you and say like, we're making this construction paper craft here, wear this, now say this, now say this. And and we're being indoctrinated into this thing that we didn't choose and we don't even know how to question. Can I ask you two quick questions? So one thing that came to mind that wasn't in the article, but as we're talking about appropriation, suddenly I was like, what about luau parties? What about white people like wearing grass skirts and stuff? Suddenly I was like, oh, I feel uncomfortable with that. Is that something that, I don't know. I don't think that's a good idea now that I'm thinking (laughs) about it. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, that's another, it might not be as obvious, but it is a way that, that people kind of play native Hawaiian in ways that are just really stereotypical and wrongheaded, like, and it ignores the ways that. Hawaiian culture, in some ways, since missionaries arrived in Hawaii, but especially after the Hawaiian kingdom was overthrown, Hawaiian hula was really repressed. And at some mm-hmm. points, where it wasn't able to be performed in public because it was understood to be rude and savage and too sexual mm-hmm. in some missionaries' eyes. And then after the overthrow, the white people that took over Hawaii banned Hawaiian language from being the language of instruction in schools. And so that kind of quickly really eradicated the number of people who spoke Hawaiian or could be fluent in Hawaiian language. And that didn't change for, it's. I mean, it's still 
the subject of a lot of efforts of revitalization today to get for children to be able to learn Hawaiian again in schools. Mm-hmm. So I just think, again, it it's not that people who have luau theme parties are trying to be cruel, but just those forms of appropriation, it really does erase like the actual history, not only just of like Hawaiian people, but particularly Hawaiian culture was repressed for many years, um, mm-hmm. but then it's okay for white people to kind of play at it in mm. a silly way. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's not great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. Number four, the fourth challenge is recognize indigenous ways of knowing. I think this one is is kind of related to what I was saying before about how originally the people that we wrote the article for wanted us to just give kind of personal testimonies about our experiences. But we wanted to get people to kind of understand that Indigenous studies is a field with its own theories and like really extensive scholarship about certain ideas that people can learn from, not just Native people. So under this section, we kind of summarize some of the like biggest like concepts or theories in Indigenous studies and try to show how these theories are relevant and poss- could be really interesting to other like feminist scholars. So we talked about like Indigenous ideas about land, about land being a form of knowledge in itself, not just kind of property that should be owned. And also just how land, like I think I mentioned before, for Hawaiians, land is our ancestor, right? And that we're really intimately tied to particular pieces of land in Hawaii and have certain responsibilities that are understood really as familial obligations. And so I think it's not that we're saying that white people or other non-Native people should therefore like start to think about land as their ancestor, because that would be a weird appropriative thing, right? (laughs) But that there are different ways to think about land. We don't have to think of land only as property to be sold. I have a question about land, actually, that I wanted to ask you, because a few years ago, my oldest daughter brought to our attention in our family, and we aren't a family that goes to Hawaii a lot. I think we've just gone once with our kids before we thought of this, but she said that there's an issue that Native Hawaiians have been priced out of their own homeland by non-Hawaiians and that the islands have become so overrun by tourists and by people who come and buy second homes or whatever, that there are people saying like, please don't, first of all, please don't purchase land in Hawaii and also maybe don't even come as tourists. But then I know that the economy is also kind of dependent on the tourism industry. So what, what is your take on those issues? So that we can be responsible if it's appropriate to go to Hawaii as a tourist. And if it is appropriate, how would we do that responsibly? Yeah, I think there's so much that could be said on this point. In the 90s, one of the really important Native Hawaiian scholars, her name was Haunani K. Trask. She wrote this piece and she at the end of it, she was kind of trying to inform people about the history of Hawaii and some of the ill effects of tourism on Hawaii. And at the end, she just wrote kind of very clearly and provocatively that like, if you want to help my people, don't come to Hawaii, right? And so I think, mm-hmm. I think today people have, have, some people still really believe that and some people understand that as it can be a little more complicated in practice, but there's a book called Detours that talks about some of those issues in the Hawaiian context. That's It's edited by my former colleague, Hoku Aikau, and another colleague, Bernadette Gonzalez. And I think that book has a lot of really great ideas about how people could start to answer those questions for themselves. But yeah, it's true that that land in Hawaii is so incredibly expensive that I think there are more Native Hawaiians that live outside of Hawaii than in Hawaii because mm. of the cost of living there. I will get that book. And again, it's called Detours, you said. Yeah, highlight. yeah. We'll put it on the website and we'll highlight it in on our social media so that listeners yeah. can pick it up and do more research. Okay, 
we're to the the final challenge. The fifth challenge is question academic participation in indigenous dispossession. I think with this challenge, we're trying to get people to think more concretely about what they might do in terms of, for example, if we're talking to other professors who are putting together syllabi on like U.S. history, we're kind of asking them to think about like, what are the readings that you have on your syllabus that address Native people? Are there any? And if there are, like, what are those readings, like, teaching your students about Native people? Is it teaching them that, oh, yeah, Native people were here before white people came, but now they're not really that much part of contemporary society? Then we're kind of challenging them to update your syllabus. For like a gender studies or women's studies class, often Native Americans might be included in like one reading on Sacagawea or like one reading on Pocahontas. But again, that that if that's the only thing you're including in your syllabus, then what we're saying is that's really a tokenized kind of inclusion that might actually do more harm than good because it kind of teaches there are just these like individual exceptional Native women and in the ways that those women are talked about in mainstream media is really disconnected from their larger society and the historical context in which they lived. And yeah, so I think we had some suggestions about other ways to approach like teaching about Pocahontas. There's a really important article by a Native scholar, Raina Green, who talks about the so-called Pocahontas perplex, which where she argues that Native women often get represented as either kind of this like heroic, saintly Indian princess like Pocahontas, or I think what she talks refers to as the squaw, which is like the dark, dark skinned, like more primitive representation of native women. And she's pointing out that the Pocahontas image is, is kind of the noble savage image and the other image is the, you know, ignoble savage image. And they're part of the same problematic and colonial mindset. And that it's not just about not including the images of the ignoble savage, but also the questioning and being more critical of images of the noble savage as well. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up this section on the, the challenges to white feminists, would you be willing to read this quote that you included in your article by Janet McLeod? I thought it was really powerful. Sure. So yeah, she writes... So let me toss out a different kind of progression to all of you feminists out there. You join us in liberating our land and lives. Lose the privilege you acquire at our expense by occupying our land. Make that your first priority for as long as it takes to make that happen. But if you're not willing to do that, then don't presume to tell us how we should go about our own liberation, what priorities and values we should have. Since you're standing on our land, we've got to view you as another oppressor trying to hang on to what's ours. Oof. <laughs> yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Miley. I Again, I learned so much from you, from your written work and then from our conversation today. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to share as we wrap up? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I just thank you so much, Amy, for all your really thoughtful engagement of my work and for having me on the podcast. And I think maybe for you and the, and your listeners who might be really troubled by, by confronting some of this, some of these issues, I think sometimes when people first learn about these things, about how Native Americans still face a lot of oppression and that the land that we live on is still Native land that was unjustly taken from Native people. The idea is that, oh, then where are we supposed to go? There's nowhere else for us to go. And I think the thing is that I don't think any Native people are saying that everyone has to go, right? And actually that's it's kind of more indicative of like a Western society's ideas about land, right? And about mm -hmm. society, that that would be the assumption that everyone has to go. It's not necessarily about that, but it's, but it is about 
learning more about Native struggles in where, wherever you live and trying to learn how to support those efforts in, in a good way. Well, thank you for that. And again, listeners, we will provide book titles, article titles, including Dr. Arvin's work, but also including others. And just start Googling, just start looking stuff up and do some deeper digging so that we can all keep growing and learning and live intentionally and with with integrity and with compassion. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Miley Arvin, for being with us today. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on breaking down patriarchy.